0: All right, now, this is the QTR podcast. Never mind. All right, I'm situated now. What's going on? How the hell is everybody? Today is September 15th. What do you think about that? 2020. Hope everybody's having a wonderful day. Can't wait to get into it. With the absolutely incredible Whitney Webb in just moments. First and foremost, this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I am going to shout out some of my patrons, then I am going to give you the two rules for the podcast, and then I'm going to get on with the damn show. First and foremost, I'd like to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. I love JM Bullion. It is the only place that I buy my own gold and silver. No bullshit. It's the only place that I currently buy from they have great selection always they turn around my orders quickly these guys have been doing business for a decade now they've done over 3 billion dollars in sales and QTR podcast listeners have their own dedicated sales rep there you can reach out to her Kathy k a t h y at jmbullion.com tell her you're a QTR podcast listener you want $5 off your order and you want free shipping, she'll make it happen for you. There's also a link to J.M. Bullion in my podcast description if you want to check it out. This podcast is also brought to you by my dear friend Pete Hedges over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a brand new, what is it, dickhead? Come on, you've been you've only been saying it for fucking a year now. I can't even get my, can't get the goddamn words out of my mouth. What does he say in the Winnebago Man uh video have you ever seen the Winnebago man video he's like I'm so goddamn diuretic (laughs) (laughs) oh my friend Pete Hedges over at the Traders Path is running a wonderful little investing community Pete started his service because he wanted to disperse with the nonsense and bullshit of other day trading services like all the dildos you see on youtube that come up in the advertisements before you're just trying to watch your video and you got to deal with some guy hawking you a system for technical analysis pete said i want to do something different i'm going to start my own shit so he started the trader's path it just passed its one year anniversary he's doing great he's got great reviews he's an honest guy to do business with he offers all kinds of great services a daily watch list Uh, he offers investor education he offers a daily live stream Pete trades red markets, green markets, stocks, options, and he's just a wonderful guy to spend the day with if you're looking for a community to surround yourself with. Check out the Trader's Path. Link is in the podcast description. Reach out to Pete. Tell him you want a discount, and I sent you. He'll make it happen. This podcast also brought to you by my homeboy, Sang Lucci, who I just saw had not a great August based on his uh, Twitter. He looks like he dropped about 300 stacks last month in the old P&L, hoping to have him on next week and chat with him about that. But for the time being, Lucci runs the Sang Lucci Steam Room, the Wall Street Jesus Steam Room. It's a wonderful little piece of software that helps you get an edge on what is going on in the illiquid options market, which oftentimes can precede big moves in the equities market. Short story, what does that mean? Hopefully it helps you make some fucking money. Uh, The Steam Room was really one of the original pieces of software that started tracking options activity a long time ago, a decade ago, before anybody was doing it. These guys are the OGs at doing it. Wall Street Jesus actually coined the term put and call sweepers. Nobody was saying that shit before him He made that mainstream Which I just think Is kind of cool Lucci also offers The 3LT playbook Which are the three rules That he used to become A seven figure trader I've seen the P&L It's not bullshit and also the Sang Lucci Master Course. All the links to those things are in my podcast description. You can reach out to him. He'll give you a discount. He'll give you a free trial. He'll give you whatever you want. Just tell him QTR sent you and uh, and wish him well because he had a shitty August and we got to get my man's uh, head back into the game because because uh, he's part of the brotherhood here. All right, this podcast is also brought to you by... My dear friends over at Corvus Gold, my friends at Traders for a Cause, that is coming up in October. Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, my homeboy Matthew Zimmer, Jay Minzmeyer, what's up, brother? Russ Valenti and Crichton Titus, thank you guys so much. I also want to shout out some new patrons, people that have signed up with me recently to help support the podcast. uh, Like Scott Hagedoni, what's going on, brother? Hayden and Jim Fahey, thank you, my friend. Wayne Barger just signed up, thank you, Wayne can't forget my homeboy Billy B just came in huge. Thank you, my uh, friend, so much. Uh, Gilherm, thank you, my brother or sister. Not sure. I think that's masculine. Macro degenerates in the house. My homeboy Mitch and John Knott. Thank you guys for recently signing up as patrons. And also, quickly want to shout out some people that have been patrons for a while, like my friend Devin Christine. What's up, girl? I still see you. Leonid Mirnov. My friend Anonymous is still in the house. How about uh, my friend uh, Baj Trading? Still with me. He's been with me for a while. Eric Penner is still here. And M3, Max motherfucking Mulvahill, patron number one, effective February 24th, 2000 and motherfucking 18. This podcast is not life advice, investment advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations. I'm here for the purpose of open dialogue. Just to shoot the shit with some people that I find interesting. So try not to take it seriously. And if you have trouble doing that, the best thing to do is just not to listen to the podcast at all. We're here just to have a discussion. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to hear any feedback. If you have any problems, emotionally or otherwise, speak to your therapist. I'm not interested in that. And finally, this podcast now has a three-drink minimum. Started at two drinks in 2018. We've adjusted for inflation. The podcast now has a three-drink minimum which I imagine is not going to be a difficult task for many of my listeners as we get ready to go down the rabbit hole in just a second. Okay, I have with me today the brilliant Whitney Webb. She is a writer and researcher for The Last American Vagabond, and she is the host of her own podcast called Unlimited Hangout. And by the way, I just noticed this morning, she also has a very badass-looking website at unlimitedhangout.com. With all of her work, there was all these interesting-looking stories on this website, and it looked so professional and so good. And I was thinking to myself, who the hell wrote all these? And under every single one, it says, by Whitney Webb. And I'm like, holy shit, you've just made a whole website. of like Like, you're a one-person news organization, which is awesome. And you know it's not bullshit and nonsense news. It's like actual journalism. So anyways, with that being said... I have the wonderful Whitney <laughs> Webb on with me today. How are you?
1: Uh, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back on.
0: Yeah, thank you. I probably should have should have said I'm doing well.
1: Look at me with my uh, imperfect English today.
0: <laughs> well, the first thing I want to do is apologize for misrepresenting the genesis of today's podcast on Twitter. When I when I said that you basically forced me to do a uh, a podcast, which of course is not what happened, uh, but you know in my head, I don't know, maybe I was living out some uh, some alternate reality. But you did send me your article last week, kind of out of nowhere, and I was like, oh shit, this is good. And then I said, all right, let's do a podcast because it was good. But you did, you know, so that's how it went down. So I want to clear the air there first. Are we cool? <laughs> Oh, yeah, totally cool. <laughs> All right. Now with housekeeping out of the way, um, I have to say, listen, you were one of the first people that I spoke to earlier this year when the pandemic was hadn't really unfolded yet. It was January, maybe. I don't remember, but we were talking about it, but the rest of the world wasn't talking about it. And you were the first person to kind of bring up the idea of the pandemic possibly winding up infringing on our civil liberties, which is something that I think people should take a little bit more seriously than they do. For the reason being of um, once civil liberties are gone, they're usually gone. So in the post 9-11 world, we know how civil liberties have changed at places you know like the airport and and elsewhere um and with wiretapping and the patriot act and um every time they kind of move the ball forward by another inch towards total and complete dystopian you know orwellian societies uh we can't take that back and you were one of the first people to bring that up in relation to covid with that being said, I want to just ask you, tell my listeners about what this article that you sent me was about.
1: Well, the article that I sent wasn't really about civil liberties, which I do think is another major issue. Um, but what it's about specifically is an organization um, that is you know, bipartisan, right, in nature, that's essentially been doing all of these Odd simulations about what's going to happen, uh, you know, on the day of the 2020 election and between Election Day and Inauguration Day and in January of 2021. And back in January, when I was on, I was also talking about how there was this company tied to SoftBank, US intelligence, and Israeli intelligence called Cyber Reason that was also conducting at that time simulations about the 2020 election. And, um, you know, in, in those simulations, they basically Uh, The end result was the declaration or imposition of martial law in the U.S. due to chaos, which, of course, in January, you know, the chaos, the palpable chaos that we see now in the U.S. had not yet manifested. Right. Right. But now that it's um, pretty much everywhere, you have this group called the Transition Integrity Project that combines a bunch of, you know, former RNC officials and people formerly associated with the Romney campaign or Project for a New American Century neocons with DNC officials, former Clinton and Obama administration officials and people tied to George Soros's Open Society Foundations all simulating a complete chaos between election day and inauguration day and with them suggesting that the military will have to step in to ensure uh, integrity in the transition process um, and this is actually being you know openly floated in mainstream media now and even in outlets that are associated more or less with the Pentagon or in the the defense industry, like Defense One, talking about six different scenarios where the military will have to step in to restore order post uh, the 2020 election. Right, so a lot of this is justified. Uh, per this group by saying, you know, oh, well, we have to simulate this in advance because what happens if Trump won't leave office if he loses? That's how they're justifying it publicly. But one of their simulations was about what happens in the event of a clear Trump win in 2020. And what that shows is that this transition integrity project, as they call themselves, are also gaming out uh, how to create a constitutional crisis, even if Trump wins the election, essentially uh, showing that the project, this bipartisan project, is dedicated to preventing a second term for Donald Trump, right, Um, among among other things, I would argue. Um, But it's definitely disconcerting in the way they go about doing this in these simulations. Um, They have the Biden campaign basically taking all these really insane measures— Uh, I guess you could say, after, um, you know, Trump is shown to win the 2020 election. By the way, in the simulation, the person that was playing Joe Biden was John Podesta, who was Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign manager. (laughs) Normal. (laughs) Uh, Totally normal, right? So anyway, what Podesta, pretending to be Biden, uh, decided to do, among other things, was convince three... states that had democrat uh governors to send uh, a different set of pro-biden electors to the electoral college just super illegal um, and then after that basically demands uh, uh, well, well organizes california oregon and washington and says that those three states will secede from the union unless uh the u.s federal government agrees to what they call structural reforms and these structural reforms include giving statehood to Washington D.C., uh, Puerto Rico, and also dividing California into five different states. Um, you know, creating a Democratic supermajority in the Senate. Essentially, that'll that'll you know uh, resist any sort of election, uh, uh, different election results in the future, right? So this is the stuff that they're openly proposing. And if that wasn't enough. Um, In January, the Biden campaign played by Podesta and other people, right, um, end up uh, having the House of Representatives vote to give the presidency to Biden anyway, even though this is the scenario where Trump won the election. Right. So it's complete insanity um, in a nutshell. And then per the actions taken there, they say that. You know, uh, there was a constitutional crisis that resulted from all of these actions taken by the Biden campaign, and it suggests that the military will have to step in to restore order because there was no um, president-elect inaugurated on Inauguration Day, right, which is an unprecedented situation for the United States.
0: Well, if they really want to see unrest, what they can do is pull one of these end-arounds to change the result of the election. I mean, I think they would create more unrest than they would prevent if something happened, like a situation where Trump won the election and then they, you know, pulled some nonsense to try to throw him out of office, which is what it sounds like. I mean, in essence, they've they already tried to do that with the impeachment. I mean, that fell flat on its face. Um, but yeah, it seems like they would be creating the problem that they are at least— at least feigning that they are trying to prevent, right?
1: Right, yeah, they're they're claiming they exist to ensure integrity in the tr- transition process and prevent a constitutional crisis and all yes. of this stuff. But if you actually look at what happens during their scenarios, right, and how they justify their existence, saying, "Oh, this is all about Trump doing bad things." Apparently, it's fine if the Biden campaign does bad undemocratic right. things. Right. Well, it's right? integrity so- as
0: long as it's as long as it's their definition of integrity. This is like this goes back to the whole groupthink. You know, you're allowed to have an opinion as long as it's the right opinion, right?
1: Right, right, something like that. But what I think is really alarming here is this hinting about the role of the military because one of the co-founders of this group is a woman named Rosa Brooks who served in the Obama and Clinton administrations. Um, she also used to be general counsel to the president of the Open Societies Institute, which is part of the Open Societies Foundations. Of course, um, Open Societies Foundations had a lot of role, uh, considerable Uh, uh, played a considerable part in a lot of these so-called color revolutions of the past several uh, decades that we've seen abroad, right? So it's interesting... You know, that we're seeing, you know, these are the people that are creating this organization. And Rosa Brooks, uh, less than two weeks after Trump was inaugurated in 2017, wrote in Foreign Policy about the possibility of a military coup uh, being organized to oust Trump from office back then. So this is the lady that created this organization, allegedly to protect democracy, definitely seems... A little odd, but what's particularly notable about this lady, Rosa Brooks, is that her current uh, research interest is about police and how to essentially uh, call for the federalization of US police under the guise of police reform. Uh, Her research interests include the so called blurring line between uh, the military and domestic policing. Among other things, and interestingly enough, the Open Society's Foundations, where Brooks, you know, where she used to uh, work, uh, um, you know, they had a document that was leaked. Didn't get a lot of press attention, but you know, uh, there was sort of a document dump from some of these Soros-funded organizations that showed efforts of them uh, attempting to capitalize off of Black Lives Matter protest, among other things, in order to push for quote-unquote reforms, right? That were, that all eventually lead to the federalization of police. And then at the same time, you have people on the quote unquote right, including in the Trump administration, calling to have the police federalized as well. So it's almost like you're having, you know, this partisan divide being aggravated by forces on the so-called left and forces on the so-called right. But at the end of the day, they're, uh, you know, promoting the same solutions to you know, issues to to the unrest, right? You have the so-called left protesting for police reform, and then you have people on the right wanting the unrest to end, but calling for the same solution that these, you know, forces on the so-called left are supporting, i.e., the federalization of police, which obviously, you know, is is in my opinion not a good way to go. Um, a lot of times, when uh, dictatorships first emerge or military dictatorships, the first thing they do is federalize police if it has, hasn't already been federalized, and essentially you would have, you know, all police be under the, you know, uh, overseen by the Department of Homeland Security, which I definitely, you know, um, I. You know, just in my opinion, based on, you know, my political uh, perspective and views, I tend to argue in favor of the decentralization of power, not the uh, increased centralization of power. And so uh, the federalization of police, you're getting that from the left right now, and you're also getting that from the right. Um, You know, they're arguing for the greater centralization of police power. Definitely think that is um, a big red
0: flag. That's one of the things that's so frightening about, central banking and monetary policy is it's one of these issues where the left and the right pretend to be arguing about it they pretend you know one party wants to spend a trillion the other party wants to spend three trillion when it comes to this COVID bill but at the end of the day both everybody misses the point that both parties are agreeing on the idea of printing money out of thin air which is right. It's frightening, really, when both sides of the aisle kind of want to get to the same spot because we're going to wind up getting there. And this federalization of the police uh, feels like one of those issues, at least the way that you're describing it. Right.
1: Right. Right. And this is, you know, why I, I tend to refer to, you know, the RNC and the DNC uh, collectively as the uniparty. Because they'll, like, pick little nitpicky points over which they disagree, but ultimately a lot of their quote-unquote solutions to real problems the country is facing are essentially the same, right? Right. So you're really not getting, um, you know, policies that are that different, you know? So I definitely think it, it, you know, this federalization of police, for example, or giving, you know, um, a blank check to the Fed to print as much money as they want, you know, those are examples of how both parties at the end of the day are, you know, the same shit.
0: Yeah, it's the illusion of choice between the two parties, right?
1: Right, and, you know, I don't think that could be more clear than it is really with, you know, the the, the candidates that the DNC chose to put forth, um, you know, for, for this election cycle. Biden and Kamala Harris, um, you know, could easily be, you know, in terms of their policies, could easily be, you know, center Republicans or, or whatever, you know. I mean, that's definitely not... Uh, I just find the whole thing to be really um, just ridiculous, honestly. I mean, um, in elections past, you know, I think it was, you know, people that were paying attention were able to see the similarities between the candidates of the different parties. But in terms of, you know, what they have supported historically, not I'm not talking about, like, rhetoric and what they're saying publicly, right? But in terms of, like, you know, their policies in office, if you look at stuff that Biden has supported over you know, his career, I mean, he's, you know, definitely it's hard to consider him a a leftist. And that's why I find it really strange that, you know, some of the, the, the Trump campaign's um, strategies towards Biden is calling him a radical leftist and Marxist um, and all of this stuff when really he's just, you know, a uniparty politician.
0: Yeah. Did you see the video? I think it was yesterday. Someone posted a video of Kamala Harris in an interview somewhere where she I don't know if it was a slip or, but she says she's talking about some policy, and she says, "Well, under a Harris administration uh, with Joe Biden, <laughs> uh, the, the policy <laughs> right. would be blah blah blah." And it was like, "Ah, okay." <laughs> it made me think. No, I, wanted, I think I wanted to always, ask. Yeah. I wanted to ask you whether you buy into the theory that maybe somehow she's going to wind up being the candidate between now and and the election.
1: Oh, yeah, I definitely think that. I think that was honestly uh, the plan from the beginning of the DNC primary. I mean, before it got underway, I mean, essentially, there were these reports about how Kamala Harris had essentially been coordinated as the next Hillary, uh, so, sorry, like crowned the next Hillary Clinton by all these DNC, you know, uh, big powered donors and all of that stuff. And that she was the favorite uh, to win the nomina- the nomination before primary starts and then you have all this like fuckery in the dnc primary um from the iowa caucus on especially with all these shady you know tech startups to count votes and do secure voting and all this stuff that ended up totally like trashing um those caucuses and primaries and what have you and then at the end of the day you have biden sort of rammed through even though the guy can barely talk but at that point kamala harris had dropped out right and a lot of the other people that they had hoped would uh, win and prevent a Bernie Sanders nomination had also dropped out, essentially leaving only Joe Biden. And so they ran through Biden to prevent Sanders from coming in and then sa- and then Biden you know, names Harris as his VP. And it's pretty obvious um, that he'll be stepping down at some point because the guy can't even fucking talk. Um, but what's also <laughs> worth pointing out is that uh, there's already this policy, the way they're gonna do it, they've already told us, right? So essentially, uh, you know, not long after Harris was announced as VP, they announced what would happen if Joe Biden tests positive for coronavirus and they say, oh, he'll step down and then Harris will become the nominee. Yeah, I right? saw or that. The-
0: I saw that like a couple of weeks ago when they put out that headline that was that said Biden and Harris plan to be tested for covid every day. My am I. I think I even put out a tweet, too. And I immediately just said Biden planning his exit strategy. Right. Because that that it exactly. is the perfect scapegoat. Right.
1: It is. Well, it's really easy to get a positive coronavirus test. I mean, there have been people that didn't even get tested that got letters in the mail saying they tested positive for coronavirus. So, you know, if Joe Biden wants to leave, I mean, that's the way to do it, right?
0: Yeah. And so you think that it's a foregone conclusion. It's baffling that the DNC would make Kamala Harris this their candidate. Like you are kind of suggesting that the powers that be decided on this a while ago. Nobody really seems well, to yeah, like well, her, you know. <laughs> like myself included. Well,
1: she- yeah, but I don't think. DNC cares. No one liked Hillary Clinton in 2016 really either. There was no enthusiasm with her, right? And then there was this attempt to file a lawsuit against the DNC for voter fraud and the DNC there essentially argued that the primary is really for show and at the end of the day the DNC chooses who the nominee is. It doesn't really matter what the party members who vote in the primary across the country have to say it matters what the DNC as an organization says. And a lot of people forget that that happened. So I think, yeah, uh, they chose Kamala Harris at the beginning and they They didn't get the result they wanted from the primary. So, you know, they manufactured a bunch of fuckery, and then she ends up becoming the VP and they set up a whole exit strategy for Biden because he can't even debate Trump.
0: I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with these debates, Whitney.
1: Have they even been scheduled? I mean, I saw there was this offer rate. September 29th is supposed to be the first one. As a moderator. (laughs)
0: What was that? The first one is supposed to be September 29th. And I just don't every day that goes by. I just keep thinking there's no way they're going to let him. I mean, you've seen he's been using a teleprompter and notes when he's doing interviews and he's reading. He's reading the prompts on the teleprompter. Like on the right. one on the in one the interview, point. he's like, "That's my foreign policy." End quote, and he says, "End quote." Like fucking Ron Burgundy in Anchorman, it just keeps reading. <laughs> it's like,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh man. That is why. Well, we also know that, um, you know, there was sort of a, a slip up where a, a woman was given a you know, basically said that she had been told what to ask Joe Biden and she went off script. And then he sort of ended up like rambling in response to her. Right. But it shows that even the people asking him questions are being fed scripted material. So in terms of what's going to go on during that debate, I don't really know. And then you have people like Nancy Pelosi not that long ago saying, well, I don't think Biden needs to debate Trump.
0: Yeah. right? So. I, I saw, mean, it's I, just—it's I wild. That quote, honestly, too. you can't—you can't help but wonder whether or not she's planting the seed to get him out of the debate, too, right? By saying that,
1: <laughs> right? I think it's—I think it's possible. It's definitely, um, you know, just—it just feels so unprecedented to me uh, to have a situation where you have two presidential candidates and one of them, people honestly don't think he's capable of even, like, having a televised debate. I mean, when was the last time this was an issue in U.S. presidential politics where one of the candidates, like, isn't mentally fit enough to be in a televised live debate,
0: you know? It's baffling. It's really baffling. And even more baffling is you have all these candidates on stage at the DNC. You had all these people running for the spot. Like, how... How do you wind up with Joe Biden getting the party's nomination? I just it, it feels to me like it's like it It almost feels to me like they're trying to just throw the election for Trump. I mean, I, I just I, I refuse to believe that level headed people in charge of the DNC. Whitney took a look at that stage and saw guys like Pete Buttigieg, who, you know, was fluent and could speak well, and he was a good orator, and, you know, seemed like at least a halfway decent person, and, and he definitely came off as a smart person, and he was a veteran, which I have immense respect for, and, you know, guys like Beto O'Rourke, look, I don't agree with him on a lot of things, including his Second Amendment policy, but he's coherent, he's younger, he's sharp, you know, he's, uh, and then you, we wind up with this guy that has just, is, I mean, is this just, there's no way it could be purposeful, right? This is just them kind of resorting to, hey, well, this guy was with Obama, th- so we're, we hopefully, you know, he'll be the establishment guy that can get the votes.
1: Well, I think what happened is what I said is that a lot of those candidates like Beto O'Rourke and Kamala Harris dropped out pretty early because of a lack of enthusiasm because the base they had hoped to attract instead went to Bernie Sanders, right? And so by the time you have the South Carolina primary roll around, Right. The only person that's really around to stop Bernie is Joe Biden after that South Carolina win. And then they just rammed him down, uh, you know, uh, they, uh, the all the Democrats throats, really. And we're like, this is the nominee. And, you know, I think it had to do with stopping Bernie. I think they waited too late. And that's why they put they, they've sort of maintained Biden as a I guess you could say a, a placeholder for whoever the VP would be nominated, who would eventually be the presidential nominee when Biden steps aside. Right. I think that was the strategy from the beginning. Um, And so they chose Kamala Harris, who was their favorite in the beginning of the DNC primary. And that's who will likely be the president if the democratic ticket wins.
0: Well, I want to ask you, what do you think the possible scenarios are between the election and the inauguration Lay out a couple of different possible scenarios. And then I want to know personally what you think could unfold, because that has been the question everybody on my podcast has asked me, you know, what do you think will happen? What what state is the nation going to be in after Election Day, maybe on election night? What do you think?
1: Well, they've already told us it's going to be way worse and way more chaotic than it is now, right? And they're essentially saying that that chaos is unavoidable. But actually, last year, you know, you had in the U.S. intelligence community, DHS, and all of these guys saying that the U.S. was going to be hit by cyber attacks by Iran, China, and Russia, or one of those three, if not all three together, or a combination of them, or what have you. Um, and I think, honestly, there's going to be some sort of false flag cyber attack that is blamed on one of those um nation states uh, because the narrative for this has been set up for a long time um i talked about it in my cyber reason series back in january and since then you know they've been ramping it up as well claiming that you know um some groups tied to those state uh to those nation states have hacked you know um like gilead uh and the remdesivir drug and all of this stuff um, and claiming that they're going to meddle in the elections through some sort of uh, cyber attack, whether it's on the power grid or, or something of that nature, um, you know, there's a lot of of crazy stuff going down right now, um, and I think that you know there's another shoe that's going to to drop here, and essentially they've really set it up so no matter who wins uh, the results of the election, well, first of all, on election night, it's very unlikely that there will be a declared winner. Um, and, they, and they've really set it up where regardless of who wins, there's going to be um, unrest to a significant degree. And that's why I think you're seeing these Washington insider groups like the Transition Integrity Project and what have you uh, essentially gaming out how to play off of that that chaos regardless of what scenario ends up happening because I think, you know, the Uniparty, the deep state or whatever you want to call it has plans that they want to implement and they have to create as much chaos as possible to Uh, To get away with that, right? So, you know, if they're creating as much chaos as possible, it's because at the end of the day, uh, the uniparty, the deep state, whatever, wants to impose order, right, on a scale they've never done before which, in my opinion, would be some sort of clampdown and all this talk about the military's role in uh, restoring order during this post-election chaos. The fact that this is being openly talked about, I think, you know, that's kind of where this seems to be going. And I think that is very, very, very unsettling. Let's keep in mind that there was this, um, back in, I think it was in March, there was all this talk, I don't know if you remember, of basically... um, (coughs) Uh, Ensuring continuity of government during the coronavirus crisis when it was first starting, you know, what happens if a bunch of members of Congress test positive and can't come to work? What happens if the normal line of succession, president, vice president, speaker of the House are all... You know, all come down with coronavirus and none of them can step in to be, you know, the leader of the country and things like that. Well, what happened, um, and this was reported in the mainstream media, was the activation of continuity of government protocols, which um, activated a military task force in Washington, D.C. Um, that's part of NORTHCOM or Northern Command, which is the part of the military that's focused on, you know, North America, right? And essentially, those protocols were about to in- ensure that the government, the system, uh, as it were, um, you know, maintains power in, in, the fate, in, in the face of some sort of existential threat. Well, that was never deactivated. So this entire time we've had this task force, right, for continuity of government, just sort of sitting there uh, waiting to be activated if some sort of existential threat emerges to the ruling order, of the US government, right? So essentially what they're expecting after the election is that very type of existential threat emerging, right? So it definitely seems, like a convenient act of pre-planning there. And like I said, you know, well before the chaos that we can see manifesting now was here, you know, this time last year, there were plans, you know, simulations, war games, whatever you want to call them, being done by people tied to the national security state about this type of chaos emerging at this exact period of time in and around the 2020 election. It just seems a little weird, you know, especially when you consider that before events like 9-11 or the 2001 anthrax attacks, you had simulations just a few months prior of the same thing that happened during those attacks happening, you know, months before. It, it you know, and, and it's not just 9-11 or the anthrax attacks. I mean, the, the 7-7 bombings in London, for example, coincided with simulations and drills that, that were about the exact of thing that actually ended up taking place at that event. Um, it merely makes you start to wonder about what the national... Oh,
0: Yeah, lost you for a second, but you're back now. Um, You were talking about the 7-7 bombings in London and how they were similar to a a simulation that took place.
1: Right, right. So there's a... You know, uh, an odd series of coincidences, if you want to call them that, with these sort of quote-unquote simulations or war games or whatever word they choose to use for them, right? And the and the uh, and and the, they always say that they're to prevent that scenario from happening, but oftentimes, as I pointed out, they are followed just a few months after right. by the very event they're claiming to be preventing, right? And if you look at the Transition Integrity Project, for example, which did these simulations back in June, right, um, you know... Here we're closer to the election and essentially what they were preparing for ended up happening. Um, And this whole controversy with the post uh, with the post office and Trump and voting and all of that was predicted by the transition integrity project in June and then ends up happening. Essentially, you know, the the concern about the post office and and all this stuff uh, ended up emerging as a major issue in in mainstream media, you know, not long after that. So you kind of have to wonder, you know, what's going on.
0: Yeah. And And then you also have people. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) I was just going to say, didn't they simulate the pandemic, too, like in October of 2019?
1: Yes. Well, there were actually a couple simulations. There was crimson contagion, which predicted a pandemic influenza originating from China. Um, That actually began in January of last year, and that continued through August of 2019. The person leading that was the Department of Human and uh, HHS's Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, Robert Kadlik, who actually um, has... Uh, ties to the simulation that preceded the 2001 Anthrax attacks, and he, of course, um, has some odd ties to those attacks and the subsequent uh, policies that were enacted using those attacks as justification. All very convenient. Um, he's a
0: very... Uh, mm-hmm. Didn't he simulate 9-11, too? Like, right before it happened as well? Well, a year before 9-11...
1: Well, there were a bunch of drills on 9-11, too, and I'm not an expert on that, yeah, so on I don't really want right. to... Um, Go into, <laughs> go into all of them, right, because apparently, you know, there were a lot, but, you know, for example, um, after nine eleven, we were told that, you know, it was a failure of imagination, right, that allowed those attacks to take place, but, you know, uh, saying things like, oh, well, no one ever imagined them flying planes into buildings or into the Pentagon, but actually a year before you had simulations, including simulations by the Pentagon itself, about uh, the Pentagon being hit by a commercial airliner right among other things so that's definitely not um that public justification we were given after 9-11 the failure of Im- imagination excuse you know i would say is not accurate and actually the cyber reason simulations for the 2020 election used that same thing as uh, justification when they did one back in november of last year saying well this is to prevent uh what happened with 9-11 the failure of imagination you know citing that specifically, which is a little weird. Um, allegedly, those simulations were done in response to uh, the foreign meddling, quote-unquote, in the 2016 election. Um, but, of course, the extent of the foreign alleged foreign meddling in 2016 um, just doesn't even hold a candle to the simulated foreign meddling that Cyber Reason did, which essentially involved hacking... Um, uh, cars and buses and ramming them into people waiting in line to vote, murdering uh, scores of Americans, right? Um, putting deep fakes all over the news on election day, you know, just doing a bunch of stuff that has never happened before, um, but using, you know, the election meddling concerns from 2016 as justification, which actually ended up, you know, being like a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of promoted memes on Facebook <laughs> and stuff like that, Right. So it's definitely, um, you know, overkill to say the least. But, you know, um, these are groups that are, you know, run or advised by people from uh, Israel's Unit 8200 or the U.S.'s DHS or the CIA, right? So, um, you know, these definitely aren't people that don't have ties to the real government of the u.s right which i you know consistently argue is very different than the public face of government that we're consistently shown and told is really in charge but you know i think a lot of people that have studied enough about um, u.s history know that oftentimes um you know the forces that actually direct what the u.s government does are different than the public face of the government
0: yeah you think the the deep state is very real huh
1: Well, I don't even know. So so like, I think the term deep state has been really politicized since the last election. But you know, I mean, for example, I mean, just take the 60s, right? In the 1960s, you have a series of assassinations, right? Not just of John F. Kennedy, a sitting president. But also his brother, who was set to win the Democratic nomination and civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. Um, you have Robert F.K. Jr.'s uh, son openly saying on Ron Paul's show that the CIA killed his dad. Um, you have the King family, the family of Martin Luther King Jr., winning a court case showing that the federal government, the U.S. federal government, was complicit in his death and that James Earl Ray, the uh, alleged assassin, is innocent. Right, So, you know, you have uh, some forces in the government there in the 1960s uh, being incredibly accused of assassinating people um, that were, you know, using uh, grassroots means, I guess you could say, to uh, ascend to powerful positions in the U.S. government. And you know, that sort of ends up stopping, <laughs> right, in the, in the decades that followed to an extent. right? Um, another example, I was talking about continuity of government earlier. In the 1980s is when the continuity of government as it, as uh, the protocols for that, as it, as it exists today, really got underway, um, being led by people that were intimately involved in the whole Iran-Contra affair, including Oliver North, among others. And you had the Miami Herald report in the 1980s that this continuity of government crowd, which included people like uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, even though at the time they weren't officially in government, the Miami Herald said they were operating as a, quote, Parallel government, and that the uh, a lot of the scandals of the Reagan administration, Iran Contra being one of them, had actually originated from this so called parallel government that was operating alongside the actual government. So, you know, we do have historical precedents that are documented even by mainstream media standards, right? Of, um, you know, things going on behind the scenes. And the president not really being the person that that determines uh, what happens necessarily in terms of of policies. Plus, you also have presidents, you know, being essentially beholden, like a lot of other uh, well-known national politicians being beholden to donors or certain interest groups because they always have to worry about being reelected. Having enough money for subsequent campaigns, which, you know, if you don't have uh, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, you can't essentially run a presidential or senatorial um, campaign or congressional comp- campaign in the United States anymore because the amount of money you have to spend is honestly through the roof, um, really crazy amount of money. So, you know, you have to court these special interests and oftentimes these special interests – um, you know, whether they, even if they court Democrats and Republicans or are separated along those lines, you know, oftentimes they advocate for the same policies as the other side. A good example is that, um, the biggest donor to the GOP or to the Republican party and to Trump, um, for the past several years has been Sheldon Adelson, who was, uh, on video saying that all he cares about is being a good Zionist and citizen of Israel, um, He's on video saying that the biggest donor in all of U.S. political politics, uh, in uh, U.S. presidential politics and electoral politics, right? Should be kind of scandalous. But then on the Democrat side, you have one of their biggest donors is Haim Saban, whose main um, policy that he wants the politicians he donates to to support are pro Israel policies, right? So, you know, Haim, uh, Haim Saban may be associated with the Democrats and Sheldon Adelson. Maybe associated with the Republicans, but both of those billionaires, at the end of the day, um, are donating to politicians with the with the hopes that those politicians, regardless of party, will support the same policies, right?
0: Yeah, that's extremely. I mean, it brings me right back to the example that we were talking before about the illusion of a the illusion of two parties in the United States, and the. Group of issues that fall underneath the umbrella that both parties agree on, and that is uh that I think should be looked at very closely because therein lies some of the most uh, egregious and possibly uh, alarming um, uh, concepts, right? Like th- those are the things that we need to pay extra close attention to because we're not even they're not even being tossed around. Not to I hate to go back to the monetary policy example again, but you know no, nobody even talks about it it's just assumed that keynesian economics works it's a given it's <laughs> right. you know it sits in this foundation underneath the underneath the arguments that the parties bicker about and so like you you're talking about the same thing right you're talking about all these very deep rooted issues that exist so far down in the bedrock of these Uh, ideological, philosophical arguments that they don't even get touched. It's just surface-level nonsense that gets batted around to give people the illusion that these things are up for debate when maybe they're not.
1: Right, yeah. Uh, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, look, look at the DNC or Democratic politicians, for example, being like, oh, well, you have to vote for Biden because Trump's a racist. Joe Biden gave the eulogy for Strom Thurmond, who was right. the most ardent segregationist in Congress for decades. He actually tried to run for president because he wanted he wanted to specifically campaign against the Civil Rights Act being passed because he wanted to prevent the inward race from mingling, right, with, you know white people, I guess, in the South, right? So that's the guy that Joe Biden eulogized. Most other members of the Democratic Party when Strom Thurmond died, boycotted his funeral. But Joe Biden goes and he gives the freaking eulogy, right? And so people are pointing the, you know, these establishment politicians backing Joe Biden are saying Trump's the racist, right? But Joe Biden not only gave the eulogy for Strom Thurmond, he authored the 1994 crime bill which is responsible for a lot of the gross racial inequities in the criminal justice system that people uh, on the Democratic side and the left in general are protesting against right now. And that a lot of these people on the establishment Democrat side are claiming you know, to support those efforts while at the same time backing Joe Biden, who helped create that situation. And while Trump was, you know, doing reality TV show hosting and not
0: as directly responsible for that situation as Joe Biden actually is. And didn't Strom Thurmond, like, didn't he... Impregnate a woman that worked for his family, like in yes. the forties or in the fifties or something. He uh yes,
1: he has a illegitimate mixed race daughter. I believe that he tried to hide for uh, a long time, unsuccessfully. That yes. was like
0: in the that was like in the fifties, right down south. That, that so I, I
1: can't remember exactly when it happened, but yeah, it's yeah. something that definitely happened.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean. I don't want to get into the ins or outs of whether or not that was a consensual relationship or not. But, I mean, Strom Thurmond doesn't come to mind uh, when I think about... uh, Strom Thurmond, he's like Robert Byrd, right? Like, Biden has associated himself with Robert Byrd. Robert Byrd was a member of the Democratic Party for a long time. He passed away. But he was in the KKK, right? Robert Byrd was actively in the Ku Klux Klan. And then somehow... 20, 30 years later, he becomes part of this party that is the savior of racism in the country. I don't I don't really get it. It's baffling when you look back to and you see that what the Democratic versus Republican divide was decades ago when the country was going through, you know, the civil rights movement and how the tables were turned. It's just nobody really bothers to look back at that kind of history. But just let's just talk about what you just said, not just Biden eulogizing Strom Thurmond or you know, Biden being friendly with Robert Byrd but these comments that he has made about you know, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. Yeah. Yeah. Does mm-hmm. he does he not realize and, No, he and, doesn't and, because and the he's left, senile. Whitney, the, <laughs> but listen, Whitney, the left's whole argument is that there is an underlying subcurrent of racism flowing through the country and that, you know, people on the right and just everybody in the country, were racist and we don't even know it. And it's like fucking your candidate is racist and doesn't even know it. Like for somebody to say something like that and he wasn't, he didn't think about that. He was just riffing, right? He was just saying something off the cuff, okay? That's what subconscious racism looks like, right? I would never... I would never say anything like that. Like I, I there, there, that's an unfathomable thing to say, right? Yeah. That, well, in in the two thousand
1: eight Democratic primary, Joe Biden said something like Barack Obama uh, to Barack Obama before Obama won the nomination, saying something like, "Oh, he's one of the good ones. He he like dresses well and speaks well. Yeah, or something. I like
0: s- I saw that dude. quote." <laughs>
1: it, biden's had this problem for a while people just like to willfully ignore it i guess because you know it's this vote blue no matter who strategy which is just like you know like you were saying it's almost like they want to lose the election and i would argue that it's it's (laughs) the line is somewhere between that and the fact that these people know that there is this pre-planned chaos i think the insiders of both parties have to know this if you're looking at groups like the transition integrity project or whatever that there's some sort of pre-planned uh election chaos that's going to take place and that is going to be used to impose certain policies that would otherwise not be possible without that type of chaotic scenario taking place for example you look at uh, the chaos during and post 9-11 that was used to justify a lot of policies, including policies that are still with us today. But also, you know, the huge expansion of the executive branch, uh, creation, the creation of new agencies uh, like the Department of Homeland Security, right, among other things. Um, you know, the expansion of of surveillance and all of this stuff. None of which was actually used to fight quote unquote terrorism, but used, you know, to surveil the U.S. populace. Uh, without warrants, right, basically undermine the Constitution and and all of that, right? So a lot of times when these situations happen, um, there is some sort of pre-planning involved, and then there's also pre-planning about how to take advantage of that chaos by the people who engineered it, right, for a specific purpose. And so I think that's what we're looking at here. And like I was saying earlier, what the reason they want... um, you know, the the antidote to chaos, you can say, right, is, you know, order. Like I was saying earlier, the more chaos they create, the greater force they can justify for restoring order. And I think that's something that can, should concern people on both the left and the right. A lot of these DHS tactics used on people um, on the left during this all this recent unrest and all of that stuff um, could easily be used against people on the right or people on the right to engage in some sort of unrest or mass protest against something perhaps maybe if biden convinces three states to succeed unless you know Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and California becomes five states, all of that stuff the TIP gamed out. I mean, obviously, that would create a lot of, you know, protests on people on the right, but, you know, DHS could very easily use those same tactics against them. Authoritarianism, at the end of the day, doesn't care if you vote red or vote blue. Uh, it's, you know, it's the state versus you, right? So I definitely think... Um, That's what the overall strategy here is going to be, exactly what sort of policies they want to ram through um, during a chaotic situation like this or what changes, whether they're permanent or semi-permanent, they want to make to the U.S. government during that period of time. I mean, we can speculate about that and have some ideas, but, um, you know, definitely when these sort of crises um, are, are, are emerge and now that we can see it coming you know a couple months in advance I guess you could say you know it's worth considering this stuff because that's what happens in these situations you know these forces take advantage um, uh, of these of these chaotic scenarios to consolidate control for themselves right yeah, well there's
0: always a period of time where citizens get so scared that they will let the government do whatever they want because they feel like the government, is going to protect them. There's a feeling of vulnerability. I've talked about it on the podcast before, like on 9-11. I remember walking out of my college dorm on 9-11 and walking to the student union because people had no clue what was going on. And I saw a, uh, you know, we knew that something had happened and the news was just starting to break. And we, uh, we saw fighter jets go like right over our university campus. And I just remember the way that I felt. I felt like I was glad that fighter jets were doing something, number one. But two, I also felt very vulnerable. I was 20 years old or 18 or 19. No, I was 18. I mean, I was kind of scared shitless. It was the first time I had felt like very, very vulnerable in a way that I hadn't felt before. And you could have told me anything at 18 years old. Hey, we need you to we need you to do this, this, and this. Stop reading this. Wear a mask every day, whatever. And I would have been like, well, fuck. If it helps do away with that feeling, okay, I'm down with it, right? And and it's these little pockets of time where that fear exists that it's so difficult, but we have to stand up for our liberties at those times more than we normally would, right? Right, absolutely, because otherwise
1: you're going to lose them. And you are going to lose them. You've already lost them over the course of the coronavirus crisis, and, you know, these sort of things don't get rolled back. They march forward. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's definitely there's a lot of concerning stuff going on behind the scenes that I think a lot of people have not been paying attention to. Um, under And it's all been going on under the guise of coronavirus crisis um, and the economic destruction caused by lockdowns and quarantines and, you know, the closing of large uh. You know, amounts uh, of the US economy and the global economy, more broadly speaking, um, you know, I'm definitely a lot of things going on that I think people would normally um, be more wary of accepting into their lives. And I think one of these um, things that's going on has to do with the mass introduction of artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence powered surveillance systems into our lives. A lot of this has been justified under the guise of contact tracing, among other things. But you know it's just a continuation of a lot of or uh, an expansion, rather. Of a lot of the surveillance programs that were put into effect after 9/11, you know, essentially the same answer to, uh, you know, supposedly combat the coronavirus crisis, and that's just one example. Yeah, it's it's really been a lot of
0: other examples. It's been a one-way street in terms of civil liberties since 9/11. I can't, I can't count any times where I've looked up and said, ah, they're rolling back this uh, regulation or they're rolling back this requirement, like you just mentioned. It's a one-way street. It's like taxation in California. It just Keeps going until something gives, right? They they never roll it back. They never uh, they never right. pair back.
1: Well, there's a reason for that, I think. So like I was saying earlier, you know, I argue that the real US government is very different than the public face of government. What we're fed is this public illusion of democracy and there's two parties and there can be change and blah blah blah. But if you look what the US power establishment does to other countries when they overthrow them, what type of leadership Do they support in in countries where there is a coup d'etat sponsored by the U.S.? What sort of government do they impose there? Do they create democracies, quote unquote? They either create something that's like the U.S. in terms of a public illusion of democracy to an extent, or they, they, you know, in the 80s and before, you know, installed military dictatorships claiming that was, you know, for freedom and liberation or whatever. And then you have the supposed war to liberate Afghanistan and you just have factions of, you know, uh, opium, narco traffickers and terrorist groups fighting each other <laughs> for supremacy over the opium trade in Afghanistan's other resources now, Right. So, you know, was that about restoring democracy? I don't think so. You just have to look at what the CIA and all these other countries, all these other, you know, alphabet agencies or whatever uh, do to countries abroad to realize, you know, at the end of the day, that's what the real government of the U.S. is. And, you know, I think there have been plans, in my opinion, right? I think there have been plans for decades to sort of transition the U.S. into something that's more overtly like that, Right. right? Because a lot of... These power established these um, agencies that are, I would argue, are much more powerful um, in terms of U.S. policy than the presidency. They're not democratic. They're they're opaque, and they don't like any of their. They don't like being held accountable for anything. You know, when was the last time the CIA was investigated? You know, it was the Church Committee, uh, <laughs> and it was Stone. <laughs> You know that was what, like in the '70s, and the person that stonewalled them on the CIA's behalf was William Barr, who's currently the head of the Department of Justice and the Trump administration. When he was the CIA, working in the CIA's legal team, was how he started off his career, <laughs> right? So, I just, you know. They were, they were hardly, I would argue, investigated in the church committee. Like a lot of stuff came to light, bad stuff the CIA had been doing, but there was no real accountability for that. And so a lot of that activity has continued going on behind the scenes, you know, for decades, uh, whether that's assassinations like the ones they did in the 60s and have arguably done since, you know, they weren't held accountable for any of that stuff. So would they stop doing it or would they keep doing it if they know they can get away with it,
0: right? Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, while you were just saying that, Another thing just pinged on my news feed because I have my news open in a a separate window on my computer. I'm sitting in front of my computer. And apparently Biden just said a Harris-Biden administration today, too. So before when I brought it up, it was just Harris who had said a Harris administration. Apparently Joe Biden moments ago today just said a Harris-Biden administration.
1: Well, maybe they're getting people ready, setting people up for it. So when it happens, they think it's normal. You know, some people call this predictive programming, but sort of like, you know, conditioning people to accept something as reality before it happens, right. um, you know, as a way to, to you know, foster a, a greater degree of acceptance of, a, of an event happening. You know, so I think, you know, that's definitely a case there. And I think it's also true for what's going to happen on Election Day. All this, all this, uh, all these mainstream media stories in recent weeks that have talked about Trump isn't going to leave office. There's going to be chaos in the 2020 election. There's going to be a constitutional crisis after the election. All this stuff is going to go wrong. We're going to get hit by cyber attacks by these countries. There's, there's even people being like, there's going to be a bioterrorist attack in the fall, and it's going to be a dark winter for the U.S. and we have to hunker down and all this stuff. I mean, there's all this seeding from everywhere you look of narratives that literally the next set. Months the United States are going to be awful, right? And so I think when that stuff manifests, all that preconditioning is going to have people be like, Well, this is how it this happened organically. It's going to make people assume that. I think that's the strategy here. But, you know, as I've been pointing out, you know, there were talks about how this chaos was going to go down and warnings and simulations about all this chaos long before. Uh, the transition integrity project, for example, started doing what it was doing in June. You know, this goes back uh, years, honestly. and it's really not that different if you look at nine eleven, for example. um so um, right. So one of the reactions to nine eleven right was the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, right? That was but the right. right. Um, The legislation to create the Department of Homeland Security had been introduced months before 9-11 and was sitting there and there was resistance to it. And a lot of people, um, you know, that became, that were in government in the Bush administration or appointed after 9-11 were arguing that it needed to happen, but there was resistance, right? But the plan for the Department of Homeland Security began under the Clinton administration by people that would later actually end up advising the Bush administration Like with the National Defense Panel in 1997 talking about the need to pivot, um, you know, from uh, pivot towards uh, homeland defense was how it first started creating a new department for homeland defense. And later it expands with all these, um, you know... um, Public-private commissions and think tanks and things like the Hart-Rudman Commission that ended up looking um, at, you know, uh, national security in the 21st century or Project for a New America Century, rebuilding America's defenses and all of this stuff, right? All of this stuff was planned out, um, the policies they wanted to implement, you know, well before 9-11 and then after 9-11, almost all of them, if not all of them, get implemented. And then you have, you know, (laughs) Rebuilding America's Defenses, the PNAC document, being pretty open about the fact that there will be resistance to these policies unless there is a new Pearl Harbor in this document that was published in September 2001 by a think tank that had a bunch of members actively in the Bush administration at the time 9-11 happened, right? So, you know, the playbook is essentially unchanged even though it's been, you know, almost 20 years
0: since 9-11, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like. I can't take these fucking names, too. The, the Transition Integrity Project, you know, the open— What was—what's the name of Soros' thing? Open— uh, Open Society Foundation. Yeah, Open Society. It's like, bitch, there's nothing open about the society that you want. You want it fucking your way, and that's it. The open society. There's no open society. There's whatever's going on in Soros's brain. That's what he wants. Idiots. The transition into <laughs> the transition integrity project. Like, oh yeah, we're I mean, we're a bunch of serious guys. Bill, and-
1: Bill Crystal of PNAC is part of the transition integrity project. Who thinks Bill freaking Crystal cares about integrity and democracy when he's the guy that argued? you know, for war in Iraq on reasons he knew was bullshit and was part of the Project for a New American Century that argued for all these policies before 9-11. And, oh, my gosh. I mean, it's just so insane. You also have Michael Chertoff on there, the former head of DHS, who's, like, fantastically corrupt. Totally crazy dude. And talking pe- about people- how we have to ensure integrity in elections. Yeah, right, dude.
0: People just need to look at how – just just take a step back, all right? Trump is pulling people out of Afghanistan, right? He is brokering peace deals overseas. You can say what you want about Trump. A lot of things I don't like about the guy, right? But we haven't gone to a new war. We haven't deployed more people in the military overseas to get killed. He's brought troops home. I mean, you remember when the Democrats... I would would
1: disagree with that a little bit. So there have been deployments made to the Middle East, but not necessarily to Afghanistan. But, like, you know, there's been uh, a large uh, shoring up, I guess you could say, or expansion of uh, troop numbers in places like Saudi Arabia. Some people argue that's because of a coming war with Iran. I mean, honestly, who knows? Um, But, you know, uh, he definitely hasn't done uh, as badly as Obama did when it came to foreign wars. And things like that. But he definitely has tried to undermine uh, the governments of some countries. So, you know,
0: do you think it's I'm not going to give him a pass. Okay, well, let's not give him a pass. Then let's just say that he's doing better than Obama in that regard, like you just said. Right. It's incredible when you stop and think about it. I hate to go back to my example with Joe Biden earlier again. But, you know, Joe Biden comes out and says these insanely racist things. Yet he is—yet mm-hmm. the Democrats seem so blinded that he's the only one that can save us from racism. You know, Democrats have long argued, right, that people on the right, they're stuck in the 50s, right, Whitney? They're like—Republicans like, like Republicans are these crusty old fucks who, you know, they just—they're are they're striving for the good old days that, you know, that will never come around again. They're living in black and white. They're living in, you know— and and they're, they're the ones advocating for you know the end of racism and also you know things like the Me Too movement. It's like your candidate's the one that is using the old school. Hey, I just I just give her a sniff. I just get close to her when I'm when I'm talking to her. You God, know that's yeah, it's, and it's just so an old so school creepy. mannerism. You know <laughs> what I mean? You don't see Trump fucking sniffing people's hair in public, like. And Biden's excuse for that behavior. If you look at that behavior objectively and you look at his excuse for that behavior objectively, which is just he's an old school guy, you know, that's how business was done in the 60s. It's like that's exactly what all these progressives are arguing
1: against. Yeah, I mean, it makes no sense. Plus, like a lot of the hair sniffing creepiness Joe Biden did to kids, not even adult women. Right. I mean, he's like King Creep when it comes to violating people's personal space. So yeah, it's really absurd. And of course, the whole Me Too thing—you know—he has a um, credible uh, accuser, Tara Reid, who accused him, um, you know, of sexual assault among other things. And of course, you know, the believe all women Democrats uh, decided not to believe all women when it, you know, involved Joe Biden. So it just shows you the the hypocrisy of you know these um, these pundits and establishment Democrats who you know associate themselves closely with the the ruling uh, powers of that party. And, you know, when they claim to care about something, you know, they don't really. So, you know, one example about this I wrote recently, you had like Ash, actor Ashton Kutcher um, crying on a video where he filmed himself crying about how, you know, you can't say all lives matters when talking about Black Lives Matters and, you know, calling a bunch of people uh, racist and all this stuff, blah, 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 and saying there needs to be uh, police reform and the police are bad and all this stuff. But at the same time, um, he's... Basically, his NGO, uh, Thorn, is being used to help Amazon circumvent uh, Amazon's supposed moratorium on selling facial recognition software to police. Um, Ashton Kutcher's Thorn (laughs) provides that software to police for free under the guise of saving kids. Okay, and then at the same time, Ashton Kutcher is a major investor in the software company for law enforcement. That's often described as dystopian, Orwellian software. That's not just funded by. Uh, uh, it's one of its. Some of its backers include, you know, General Petraeus, the former CIA director right and then ashton kutcher is elite one of the leading investors there too right so he and but then he goes on camera and cries and does all this like virtues you know virtue signaling posturing whatever about you know oh no you can't say that because it's super racist and whatever at the same time he's helping create the police state he's supposedly crying about yeah, right. on camera normal. you know complete bullshit yeah normal
0: ashton kutcher is involved in that too Uh, Don't really understand that. Well, He
1: tweets himself out like saying gratitude to the CIA for keeping our country safe. You know, you wonder who he, (laughs) uh, you know, gets his, uh, you know, gets advice from, I guess. I don't know. Definitely kind of a suspect guy. But a lot of times these Hollywood people get, you know, marched out to support these these causes and these movements and whatever um, trying to make you know shore up support for them among the public right Right. so you know that's what Ashton Kutcher is doing there but you have you know people like I don't know, uh, George Takai and Alyssa Milano being super affiliated with the DNC and promoting all this, you know, vote blue no matter who and all this stuff. And there's like a bunch of other celebrities that have, I just, you know, been recruited to do that, right? I just
0: watched Robert De Niro in a video right before I came on the podcast with you. Somebody had posted a video of Robert De Niro talking about President Trump and he's saying, you know, he's a scumbag, he's a liar, he's a con artist, he's this, he's that, he's going on, whatever. And then he takes exception with the fact that Trump said he wanted to punch somebody in the face at a rally. I guess one of the protesters. And he was like, you know, he says he wants to punch somebody in the face. And then De Niro says, you know what? I'd like to punch him in the face. And it's like, dumbass, (laughs) you're doing the same thing that you're criticizing. You know, regardless of what you think of the two of these guys, he's doing the same fucking thing that he's criticizing him of.
1: These people are nuts. It's just insane. (laughs) I don't I mean. It's literally constantly a, a clown show oh. all the time in U.S. politics these days. Or now, you know, now more than ever, it's a, uh, you know, you think you think we uh, every day. I'm like, this is peak stupidity in the U.S. And then you know, the next day comes and there's some other crazy bullshit going down. It's a uh, really wild time to be alive,
0: isn't it? I want to ask you uh, one more question before I let you go. I was talking to Dave Collum. A couple of days ago, Cornell professor Dave Collum, and uh, he brought you up because we were talking about uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, and we were talking about what a wonderful conversation we had the last time that you were on because that's we were covering the details of her arrest and the details of her charges. And so, if you're if that's something you're following and you haven't listened to that, you should go back and listen to that podcast. I think that was in June or July. Um, I just wanted to ask you. If there's been anything new, either with Maxwell or with the Epstein case at all. Uh,
1: I mean, yeah, uh, I'm not really sure uh, how much you want to get into everything that's gone on, but I definitely think there's, um, you know, so last time I was on, we didn't know if she was going to get bail or not. I thought she wasn't going to get, that she was going to get bail just because of um, the the charges against her being lenient, despite what the indictment itself says, that there is stuff they could have easily charged her for that's much more... um, you know, uh, carries a much heavier sentence that they chose not to charge her for, even though they admit she committed those crimes in the indictment itself. Right. So for whatever reason, she was denied bail. Um, but there's definitely been some weird stuff going on where you have, for example, the people prosecuting her, uh, and and responsible for her being arrested right now, also arguing that the civil case between her and Epstein victim, Virginia Roberts needs to go away, which is a little weird. Um, Why would that need to go away so you can prosecute this case uh, that they're doing? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there is this legal battle related to the civil case that is set to have Ghislaine Maxwell's official deposition regarding the Epstein scandal be made public. And Ghislaine Maxwell's defense attorneys have argued that that cannot be made public because it will totally prevent uh, Ghislaine Maxwell from receiving a fair trial uh, for her trial that's scheduled for next year, right? So, um... I definitely think that's a little suspect that now we have the prosecutors in the case against Ghislaine Maxwell also arguing that that deposition essentially can't be released and that the civil case needs to go away. Definitely seems a little convenient. Then you remember back that, uh, so so like the head of SDNY that's prosecuting this case against um, Ghislaine Maxwell um, is Audrey Strauss, I believe her name is. And she used to be under this guy named Jeffrey Berman, who was essentially removed from his post by William Barr right? And so some people speculate that it had to do um, with efforts by Berman and Strauss to prosecute Ghislaine Maxwell because her arrest followed shortly thereafter. But what I always thought was odd um, back then is that one of the people who argued against Berman's firing was Ghislaine Maxwell's defense attorney. And so now you have um, the prosecutor's and the defense attorneys for Gillian Maxwell in this other case in SDNY uh, essentially saying that you know the civil case needs to go away right, right. Um, definitely a weird sort of suggests that there's a fuckery afoot when you consider that the FBI uh, covered up the Epstein scandal beginning in 1996 when it was first reported to them and then that you know they didn't make any moves on Epstein until last year and then waited a whole year To go after gillian maxwell even though she was in the united states the whole time right so i definitely think there's something uh up here um i think a lot of it too has to do with the fact that sdny is a very politicized district um, is focused and doing a lot of uh, so-called corruption corruption investigations that are clearly politicized and aimed at uh, Trump specifically, including their probes of Deutsche Bank, their efforts to get Trump's tax returns released, among other things, which is stuff establishment Democrats have been working to do, you know, since Trump was uh, the our, the Republican nominee last election cycle. So, you know, I think it's very possible their prosecution of Ghislaine Maxwell is aimed at getting her to uh, cooperate to some extent with, um, you know, these sort of um, politicized efforts to target Trump specifically, um, but I mean, who knows? It's it's really hard to say. But all I can really say um, with certainty is that something uh, from the beginning has not has not been right with the case against Ghislaine Maxwell. As I mentioned earlier in the indictment, they say that Ghislaine Maxwell was involved in the sexual assault of these minors, but they chose not to charge her for that, right? And they claim to be supporting right. the victims. And they say in the indictment, yes, Ghislaine Maxwell helped rape these these kids, but they don't charge her for it. You know right. that to me was like the biggest red flag ever um, <laughs> when she was first arrested. And now we have this other stuff playing out. Um, and now the prosecutors are arguing for this this civil case that was set to bring out a lot uh, a lot of information to light. And you know, there's uh, this pressure from prosecutor and defense, right, to make that separate case go away. Definitely super weird. And um, I would argue disconcerting. But, um, you know, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. But as we were talking earlier um, about all this chaos that's scheduled to explode in the U.S. over the next several months, um, for whatever reason, Ghislaine Maxwell's trial date was set to begin in what, either June or July of next year. I think it's very possible that there may be no trial for (laughs) Colleen Maxwell, or she may, you know, agree to some sort of cooperation, whatever, post-election or during, you know, whatever chaos manifests over the coming months, and it'll just be memory hold. I mean, honestly, who knows what's going to happen there. But I honestly have, you know, plenty of reason to doubt that there will be any real um, investigation or real justice served in in the Epstein scandal case because they haven't done so (laughs) time, Right. So, you know,
0: it it certainly feels like if there was going to be a time to settle with her, it would be in the midst of this barrage of chaos, right? You have COVID, you have the election, you have all this civil unrest. Just slip through the old Maxwell settlement, and the world may not even notice. Um, So, the timing could certainly be right, right? Yeah, I definitely think
1: that's part of it. And I think, you know, they just wanted to show that they were doing something to an extent, I, th- I think that's part of it, too, because, you know, after Epstein was suicided or whatever, whatever happened to him last year, you know, the story refused to die, even though there were efforts to memory hole it then. Right. And make it all about Epstein's death. Right. One of the reasons interest in the case didn't go away after that happened was because people kept asking, well, where's Ghislaine Maxwell? Right. And then all of a sudden she's found and she's arrested and justice is served, blah, blah, blah. But it's it's actually not looking that way. There's definitely some really odd things going on with that case that, you know, I think should show people that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than we've been led to believe. And, you know, I mean, Epstein was an FBI informant. He was like working with the FBI, you know, to an extent before he was arrested the second time by them, supposedly for whatever reason. So, you know, I mean, there's just, like, um, our institutions are fundamentally corrupt on such an insane level and to have, you know, the FBI consistently uh, covers up scandals that it's supposed to investigate, right? Um, A separate... You know, it, not just the Epstein scandal either, like the 2001 anthrax attacks, the, the investigation by the FBI into the anthrax attacks, it destroyed evidence, it refused to investigate a bunch of evidence, it refused to interview certain people, the lead investigator for the FBI uh, resigned and became a whistleblower and said that it was a giant cover up. I mean, it was a cover up, right? So, you know, this is what the FBI does a lot of times when there's, a, you know, scandals that involve the U.S. government itself or allied governments that it's supposed to investigate it chooses not to for whatever reason, right? And so, you know, it's all about handling, uh, you know, cover-ups for the establishment, I think, to, to a significant degree. So, you know, it's not really the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It's more like the Federal Bureau of, of Cover-Ups,
0: <laughs> I would argue, so what are you working on now what can people expect to find if they go to unlimitedhangout.com um what what are you up to right now for people that want to uh follow you after this podcast ends
1: um well on unlimited hangout i have links to all of my big investigative series from the past year which includes the epstein series it includes the cyber Reason series that i really recommend people go back and read because you know i wrote it in january it it describes a lot of what's going on right now right um and also what i wrote about the 2001 anthrax attacks uh, the simulations before it and the parallels between that and the coronavirus crisis how a lot of the same players involved in what happened before during and after the anthrax attacks are now in government or uh at the helm of major pharmaceutical companies and max vaccine va- manufacturers who are going to make a ton of money off of the coronavirus crisis right so um But more recently, I've been focusing on, you know, a couple different issues, including, you know, 2020 election stuff, a lot of stuff about surveillance, civil liberties, artificial intelligence. Um, Right now, I'm talking about what I definitely consider to be a very Orwellian uh, turn of events where you have the Pentagon and Google partnering to use AI to automate and predict coronavirus diagnoses using data um, from the US government and from Johns Hopkins that has been criticized for over-exaggerating COVID death tolls and infection rates among other things. So of course an AI AI algorithm is only as good as the data it's trained on. So if you train it with faulty data, you're going to get a faulty AI, uh, AI algorithm, right? So definitely disconcerting to have the military and a major Silicon Valley uh, tech giant you know, team up to sort of, you know, for your healthcare, it definitely seems a little weird and there's some other connections I'll be pointing out in there um, that I think you know, may be of interest to people in terms of what's going on. But um, a lot of, uh, I, I also have um, a series I'm working on that I'll be wrapping up in the next couple of months or so. Um, that, that's about the Maxwell family. I started writing it back when Ghislaine was first arrested um, I guess that was July or so. Um, so I, I have a couple out uh, now and I have one more to do on Isabel Maxwell. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's sister and her other sister, Christine, I'll be doing an article on her as well. They both are very clearly uh, tied to intelligence, but in a much uh, less public way than Ghislaine was because, you know, even before the Epstein scandal broke, you had Ghislaine Maxwell being tied to uh, famous people like Prince Andrew and what have you before, you know, what was really going on uh, was made public. Right. So, and celebrity friends and all of this stuff and was like a, a noted socialite. Right. But the sisters have been, um, working behind the scenes in tech companies. Um, and, you know, one of them founded a company with an active-duty, high-ranking CIA uh, officer, really uh, the chief information officer at the time of the CIA. Um, that's apparently normal.
0: Normal, yeah. And yep. then you have
1: Isabel <laughs> Maxwell um, having very close ties to Bill Gates and having uh, the two co-founders of Microsoft, including uh, both Bill Gates and Paul Allen, uh, funding her uh, IDF an Israeli intelligence-linked company, uh, basically putting them uh, in the U- uh, putting them on the map of the U.S. market, um, and all this stuff. And what's crazy about that is that both Christine and Isabel uh, were involved in the front company that Robert Maxwell used to sell the bugged promise software to U.S. national laboratories, uh, giving Israeli intelligence a black a back door into the U.S. nuclear program. Right. So that was known to U.S. authorities at the time when they let you know, these companies, you know, run by Chris created by Christine and Isabel, you know, be allowed to operate in in the US. I mean, just really, really crazy. And you you know, um in my last article I did for that series on Isabel Maxwell, you know, she essentially uh talks about how she inherited and took on her father's portfolio as it relates to his uh, high-ranking political and intelligence contacts in Israel. I mean, it's crazy. But, you know, just because the the public attention on the case has been focused focused exclusively almost really on, on Ghislaine Maxwell, you know, both of her sisters have been allowed to slip under the radar And this is really crazy when you consider that Isabel Maxwell's son was appointed to be chief of staff of the Middle East desk at the State Department while Hillary Clinton was secretary of state. Remember all the ties between Hillary Clinton and uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and and, uh, Maxwell and Epstein's ties to the Clinton Global Initiative um, and and things like that. It's definitely really disconcerting uh, to have, you know, a Maxwell family member be involved, um, you know, in charge of the Middle East desk obviously involving um policy with respect to israel and palestine and other um you know nation states that are of interest to israel specifically right um at a time when actually the arab spring was going on where the state department led by hillary clinton was intimately involved in the overthrow of several governments uh during that period of time really wild so yeah definitely people should be paying attention to the entire maxwell family not just Ghislaine maxwell because you know they're um as well you know, I named the series the Maxwell Family Business Espionage. It's definitely accurate, <laughs> to say the least. So all of that, um, all of those articles and a lot more, you can find at on limitedhangout.com. Um, I'm also on the YouTube alternative uh, known as Rockfin, uh, where you can find audio versions of all of my articles for people that don't like uh, <laughs> reading lengthy reports. You can listen to them instead. And I also have a podcast that you can find on rockfin.com as well.
0: Awesome. Most people that listen to my solo podcast tell me that they speed it up to 2x the speed to get through it and you know deal with it quickly. I think when you're on, people have to slow the shit down to like half speed because there's just so much you just have you're just so much information you're so highly concentrated like those bricks of orange juice that you buy at the supermarket it's like one brick one brick makes 50,000 gallons holy shit you know you got to do me a favor though when you uh, yeah. when you get your own tv show or you know you make it big cuz you are uh, you're like george gammon right my buddy george gammon he just he's just too smart and just does such great work that is successful just not be able to elude him and you are on that very same path uh, because you just do such wonderful work so make sure you remember me when you're famous all right that's the only thing I want make sure you stop back on the podcast once in a while and chat with me all right
1: yeah, sure, but I really doubt I'll get a TV show. You know, I'm really a writer and not a public speaker, um, as you can tell from all my ums and ahs and you knows and rights at the end of my sentences. So I, you know, maybe I'll get published somewhere bigger, but I don't really expect that at this point. I mean, one thing that I think is more likely than than fame for me is the imminent deplatforming from social media, which I think not isn't going ah. to happen. Not just to myself, but yeah. most of alternative media. Um, and independent media in the months to follow. So I would encourage people to uh, go to my website on like that we were talking about on limitedhangout.com. If you scroll to the bottom of the homepage, there is a mailing list. Uh, you can sign up and get all my articles that way, or you can follow me on Rockfin um, or my work uh, through um, by also following The Last American Vagabond, which either republishes a lot of my stuff or I publish some things there as well.
0: Yeah, and I don't think uh, people are worried too much about Filler words when they're simply trying to avoid the imminent downfall of Western civilization. So we'll we'll deal, we'll deal with the <laughs> hey, we'll, we'll deal with the occasional filler you'd
1: be word. How many comments I get about how I'm not a good public speaker? You know, I mean, it's. <laughs> um, There's a lot of people that it apparently bothers, but, you know, um, I'm just trying to get the information out there. I can't really um, make myself a good public speaker. I'm a writer, you know.
0: Yeah, well, (laughs) if they're so bothered by it, they should go listen to something else, you know, instead of doing the instead of pulling a Robert De Niro and listening to the content because they like it, but also complaining about it on the side. You know, yeah, I love the Constitution. Yeah, I love democracy. Yeah, I love the country. But I'm just going to bitch and moan about it for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whatever. All right, Ms. Webb, it was lovely as always. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, spending an hour and a half to inform my listeners. I hope we get to chat soon.
1: Absolutely. Sounds awesome. Thanks again.
0: All right. Bye-bye. That was the one, the only, Whitney Webb. All of her links can be found in my podcast description if you want to check out unlimitedhangout.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. And again, to my patrons who are the driving force behind this podcast that keep things moving, uh, with the exception of myself who gets liquored up and turns on the microphone a couple times a week. All right, fools, I'm out of here. Peace.